But we're going to pick up where we left off in our study, which is on chapter 18, the assurance of grace and salvation. So we're just going to be talking really about the assurance of salvation tonight. And one of the things that I love about this section of the confession is how pastorally sensitive and careful it is. That it's not merely a cold document full of high doctrine, though it extols the glory and the grace of God as well as any confession. But pastorally speaking, it understands the weakness and the frailties even of those who are regenerate, who are in Christ who are in a state of grace and have not yet been glorified. It's going to recognize that our assurance in any given moment or any season can be frustrated or disturbed or rattled. And it's going to encourage us by reminding us that regardless of our assurance at any given time, personally speaking, it has no bearing whatsoever on our salvation. And that's really good news. Listen, it's good news as a pastor who counsels weary saints that are struggling with assurance, but it's also good news, I think, for members of churches as we aim to disciple one another. If you spend enough time in a local church trying to help other people follow Jesus, and as they help you follow Jesus, it's only going to be a matter of time before you sit in your own living room or in a coffee shop, having a late-at-night conversation, perhaps with students on the college campus answering these kinds of questions, consoling believers that are struggling with whether or not they are in fact believers. And how do we encourage saints such as these? How do we think about our assurance? Do we even have assurance? That's really what this article is concerning. Now, as we just consider over the course of this year with a view toward uh, potentially voting on adopting this confession in December as a congregation, uh, you may remember back at one of our initial sessions, uh, we answered a number of, of objections. And one of the objections that naturally arises is, oh, but this confession is just so big. Well, let me encourage you in something. If you open up your copy of the confession and you look at the table of contents, you're going to notice that beginning with chapter 7, speaking of Christ, our mediator, or chapter 7, the covenant rather, and then the covenant maker with Christ our mediator and everything that follows, some 60% of this confession is really concerned ultimately with our Savior and of the benefits and the blessings of our salvation. 60% of the confession is just helping us look at the gospel of what we enjoy in Christ by faith from lots of different angles and thinking about it not just propositionally but personally. And so when you're tempted to think, Man, this is a big confession. Does a church really need a confession this big? You might consider how much of the confession is taken up with helping us better understand and ground ourselves in the truth of the gospel and how much we often need that. To be reminded of the gospel in lots of different directions because like Adam said in his sermon, his excellent sermon, by the way, on Sunday, uh, we often, like the disciples, fall prey to gospel amnesia. And so one of the ways that a good confession like this serves us well is by getting us front and center to the truths of the gospel, to the blessings and the benefits that we enjoy in Christ. Well, chapter 18, as you can see from that quote there, chapter 18 is ultimately bringing these aspects, the blessings and the, and the benefits of salvation to a close before we 
change directions into some more practical aspects of our doctrine. Just consider that quote there, right in the middle of your handout. The doctrine of assurance is a suitable companion to the previous of perseverance of the saints, that is of chapter 17. Complementing the outward guarantee of faith with its inward counterpart. If perseverance provides the promise that God will keep the believer in the faith, granting and aiding the pledged blessing, assurance allows the persevering believer comfort and enjoyment through all the blessings and the obstacles of life. Well, I don't know about you, but I want comfort and enjoyment. I want comfort and enjoyment, especially when life is hard. I want to be assured that I belong to Christ, that my circumstances and that my own fickle heart is not deceiving me to believe that as a result of those circumstances or even the result of my own indwelling sin, that Christ has somehow uncovenanted me. And so this assures us of our salvation and of God's grace to us in Christ according to his covenant. Four paragraphs, four points. We're going to consider, first of all, the possibility of assurance. That's going to be paragraph one. And in it, we're going to consider both false assurance of false believers, but we're also going to consider true assurance of true believers. Then in the second paragraph, we're going to consider the foundation of assurance, its grounds, and then its fruits. Thirdly, in paragraph three, we're going to consider the cultivation of assurance. We're going to see a number of things in that paragraph. We're going to see that believers in this life often have to wait for assurance and sometimes for a long time. It's going to speak directly to the attaining of assurance as well as our own personal experience of that assurance. Finally, in chapter four, we're going to see the renewal of assurance. Is it possible that those who are in Christ by faith might lose for a time their sense of assurance? And if so, why? And if they do, then how is that sense of assurance renewed? You can see even just from the outline how pastorally sensitive this chapter is. And I don't know where many of you are. I know where many of you are, but I don't know the depths of most of your hearts. Some of you might be coming in this evening even having recently asked some of these questions. You see sin in your own life and you wonder, am I really even a Christian? You see your love for God and your love for the other saints, and it feels weak and cold, and you wonder, is the Spirit even in me? When you consider your own faithfulness and obedience, you might look around and think, have I done enough? And is the lack of my doing give any evidence whatsoever to my state before God? Beloved, I hope that our time tonight will be encouraging to you as this chapter aims to summarize the truths of the Scripture for your benefit and for your comfort. Let's consider that first paragraph, the possibility of assurance. If you have your copies of the Confession, I would encourage you to go ahead and open up to it with me. That's going to be chapter 8, chapter 8, beginning in paragraph 1. God was pleased in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, 
his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them to be the mediator between God and humanity. Whoop, that's eight, not 18. Forgive that. <laughs> Sorry about that. Here we go. 18, not eight. It's hard to read Roman numerals. Temporary believers and other unregenerate people may deceive themselves in vain with false hopes and fleshly presumptions that they have God's favor and salvation, but their hope will perish. Yet those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him sincerely, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may be certainly assured in this life that they are in a state of grace. They may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and this hope will never make them ashamed. We're going to see two things, at least in this paragraph. We're going to see, first of all, matters concerning false assurance, or specifically dealing with false believers or unregenerate people. You notice that there in the first sentence. The confession uses two phrases. First of all, temporary believers and other unregenerate people. Now, it's not saying the temporary believers are at one time generate and then become unregenerate. Temporary believers belong in the same category as unregenerate people. That was just a common Puritan way of describing apostates. Those we might consider, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 6, that have been in the church, been blessed by having proximity to the gospel, have even experienced its blessings and its benefits indirectly by being in, in, in physical and practical fellowship with the saints, and yet drifting away from what they profess with their mouths to be true concerning Christ, apostatized from the faith and are not one back. They are temporary believers. That is, they are nominal and then apostate believers. They are unregenerate. And it says here that they may deceive themselves in vain with false hopes and fleshly presumptions. That they have God's favor and salvation, but their hope is going to perish. In other words, there's all kinds of people who might claim to be Christians who have their assurance in something other than Jesus Christ. It might be the family that they've grown up in. I come from a Christian family. It might be a prayer that they once prayed. They walk an aisle and pray to prayer, and their trust is not so much in Christ, but the fact that they prayed a certain prayer in a certain way, assuming that if they prayed that prayer in a certain way, then God would respond to their faithfulness in praying in that way and save them. Or perhaps it's their wealth. How many hucksters on television and in big tent revivals convince others that true faith leads to physical blessing, especially through wealth? That if you would just sow in faith, then God will pour out on you His own blessings through riches and through health. Or it might be perhaps our own charity or our own acts of mercy. And that's not to say that wealth and charity and, and prayer and family, those are bad things. It is to say that there are some who in these things and in many others might be tempted to, to hope in these things, to look to these things ultimately for their assurance and not ultimately to Christ and His finished work. You may notice in your footnotes that the confession cites Job, and it's a great description of the one who has not hoped in God. So you might turn to the book of Job, Job chapter 8. Consider, consider this language. Such are the paths of all who forget God. 
The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it doesn't stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. You get the idea just in those handful of verses that here those things that, that unregenerate people hope in will one day perish. It will fail them in the end. In that day, that in which they place their confidence is going to be cut off. And that in which they are trusting themselves blows away like a spider web in that day. And that's what we're saying here. And I wonder if perhaps this is exactly what Matthew has in mind in his own gospel, Matthew chapter 7. Many of you are familiar with it. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's be clear that when we understand this passage in light of what we understand about the gospel from the rest of the scriptures, that ultimately prophesying and casting out demons and mighty works are not bad things, depending on what's meant by those things. But to hope in those things is both the means and the grounds of your salvation, much less your assurance will leave you and your confidence severed in that last day. Is it possible that you can hope in good things pertaining to the Christian life and not be one who hopes ultimately in Christ. You bet it can. And in that day, those whose false hopes and fleshly presumptions will give way. And it says here that their hope will perish. And so there are some who are confident that they will be saved. They're confident that they will be in heaven. They're confident that they're good before God and their confidence will one day fade. And what's interesting then is how chapter 1 compares then the confidence of the false believer with perhaps what may be at times the lack of confidence by the true believer. Yet those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him sincerely endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him may be certainly assured in this life that they are in a state of grace. They may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and this hope will never make them ashamed. We're going to see a couple of things in the second half of the paragraph. First of all, we're going to see the conditions. You see that there? Who believe in the Lord Jesus, who love him sincerely, and who endeavor to walk consequently in all good conscience before him. That is, my conscience is clear. It has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Of course, by that word at the beginning of that sentence, yet, what it's to say is that those temporary believers and unregenerate men are those who do not truly believe in the Lord, who do not truly love him sincerely, and who do not endeavor to walk in a good conscience. That is, a blood cleansed conscience. And so the conditions of those who attain to true assurance are true believers, those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus. And the consequence of that belief and of that sincere love and of that endeavoring to walk by His grace and all good conscience before Him, the consequences are these. That you may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and 
This hope will never make them ashamed. He's just quoting Romans 5 there. If you have your Bibles open, it might be good to put your eyes on it. Romans chapter 5. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and here we have it, hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. But I also want you to notice that word at the beginning of the clause, may be certainly assured in this life. That word may implies that there may be times that the true believer is lacking an assurance that has his assurance rattled and shaken or perhaps even for a time has it disappear altogether. It implies times of uncertainty and so it's interesting how it compares then the proud presumptions of the false believers with the sometimes rattled assurance of true believers. This is an important truth, and it's going to be fleshed out later on in the chapter, that we might be assured even when our assurance is rattled that we are in Christ. Well, paragraph two, the foundation of assurance this is really the heart of the chapter. Really what the chapter is endeavoring to say, what it's endeavoring to establish, is found here in the second paragraph. It's going to teach us, first of all, about our grounds of assurance. What does the scriptures have to say about our grounds of assurance? And then it's going to talk to us about the fruit of assurance. What is the fruit that comes from the assurance that we enjoy? So we have a ground of assurance, and then we have the fruit of assurance. In considering the grounds of assurance, we're going to notice three specific grounds. One of them is going to be a primary objective ground. That is, grounds that are outside of ourselves, and they are primary. It is primary. In other words, it precedes secondary grounds. But it's also going to take note of secondary subjective grounds. Subjective just means that which is root in the subject. We are the subject. That which is true of us and in us. You see the language of inward here. It is not only subjective, but it's secondary. So here's the truth that we need to understand. That when it comes to understanding the doctrine of assurance, we begin, first of all, primarily with that which is objective. Those truths which are rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ... And we follow then with subjective grounds. That is ultimately the inward evidence of the grace of the Spirit in our lives. Now, obviously, it can be the case sometimes where when we get those backwards, when we treat the subjective grounds of assurance, that is the inward sense and knowledge and experience and evidence of the grace of the Spirit in our lives, when we begin there and we treat those as primary, then we're going to be tempted to question the objective grounds of assurance. Did Christ really die for me? What the confession does is it rightly orders the way that we think about assurance. And so it's saying, first of all, first and foremost, when it comes to assurance, don't look to yourself. You look first and foremost to Christ. You look first and foremost 
to the gospel. As Robert Murray McShane famously said, for every one look that you take to yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And that's exactly what this chapter is aiming to do. Notice, first of all, the grounds of assurance. It says, this certainty is not merely an inconclusive or a likely persuasion based on a fallible hope. John Murray clarifies it this way, that when we speak of the grounds of assurance, we're thinking of the ways in which a believer comes to entertain this assurance, not of the grounds on which his salvation rests. The grounds of salvation are as secure for the person who does not have full assurance as for the person who has. Is that good news for weary believers lacking assurance? Oh, you better believe it is. And so this certainty is not merely on an inconclusive or a likely persuasion based on a fallible hope like the fallibility of our own personal experiences. No, it is based on the infallible truth of the gospel, and that's our primary objective ground. It is an infallible, it cannot fail, it is an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and the righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. Take a look at that sentence right there, and I want you to notice that you cannot find yourself anywhere in it. You cannot find your own good works unto God anywhere in it. You cannot find your own subjective experience of God's grace in your life anywhere in it. It has everything to do with what Christ has accomplished outside of you in time, space, and history through his incarnation, sufferings, death, resurrection, and exaltation. It has everything to do with the work of Christ. In other words, chapter 8 of Christ our mediator (laughs) precedes everything else concerning the blessings and the benefits of the gospel. Christ is first. Consider Hebrews chapter 6. Book of Hebrews chapter 6, right after considering that one who has fallen away from the grace of God, he says this, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have what? The full assurance of hope to the end. What is that assurance? Notice down in verse 17, that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. What are those two unchangeable things? It's the promise of God and the oath of God. It is the word of God and it is the external signs of his promise-keeping purposes. So he says in verse 18 that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, get this, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Oh, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become our high priest. And so the infallible assurance of faith is first and foremost founded on the unfailing blood and righteousness of Christ as revealed in the gospel, full stop. Beloved, that's where we begin. When your assurance is shaken, when your assurance grows dim and weak, 
when you ask hard questions about, can I really be a Christian? Does God really love me? Am I really in Christ? Have I really been forgiven? Then you look not first to yourself, not first to your own works. You look first and foremost to the primary objective grounds of your assurance, and that is the revelation of Christ in the gospel. <laughs> we begin with Jesus. And only from there, then, do we move on to the secondary, subjective grounds of our assurance. That on the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit under which the promises are made, and on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our hearts that we are the children of God. In other words, there is an inward work of the Spirit that both testifies of the truth of the promises of God, and witnesses to us that we belong to Him. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. The confession is just lifting Scripture and summarizing it for the benefit of those who use the confession. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear... But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The fruit of this assurance of its primary objective grounds and its secondary subjective grounds is this that our hearts are kept both humble and holy. Humble in that we recognize ourselves as always in ongoing need of the grace of Christ. We recognize ourselves as still yet battling with indwelling sin. And in humility, we believe God's word to us in the gospel before we believe our words to ourselves concerning our state before God. Only a proud man believes his own words over God's words. And so we humble ourselves. And our hearts are kept holy. That is set apart unto Christ in opposition to sin. And according to the grace of Christ, growing in a love for all of the things that belong to God and are given to us by him. And so this secondary paragraph is so important because it roots us fundamentally in the gospel. And from there, coupling to it, that primary objective grounds of the revelation of Christ in the gospel, coupling to it then are the subjective, inward, experiential grounds of our assurance, namely the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit taking the truth of the gospel and witnessing to our own spirits that, yes, indeed, Christ has died for you. Yes, indeed, you are children of the Most High. Yes, indeed, you are co-heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. So don't get these mistaken. The inward evidences of the graces of the Spirit hitch themselves to the objective proclamation of the gospel, such that to neglect the the objective grounds and proclamation of Christ in the gospel is to undercut and undermine and short-circuit the inward evidences of the graces of the Spirit. Because the Spirit testifies to us no less than the truth of the gospel. 
Neglect the gospel undermines subjective experience of assurance. Drive yourselves deep into the objective reality of the gospel. And those subjective experiences, the inward evidence of the Spirit's witness, will grow by God's grace in time. Root yourself in the gospel. The third paragraph then turns our attention to what do we do then? How do we cultivate this assurance? We're going to see a few things that it's possible for believers to be waiting for this assurance and maybe wait for some time. We're going to see, secondly, what it looks like to attain to this assurance. And then thirdly, what it looks like to experience this assurance. Read along with me, paragraph 3. This fallible assurance is not such an essential part of faith, but true believers may wait a long time and struggle with many difficulties before obtaining it. Yet with the enabling of the Spirit to know things freely given to them by God, they may attain this assurance using ordinary means appropriately without any extraordinary revelation. Therefore, it is the duty of all to be as diligent as possible to make their calling and election sure. These effects are the natural fruits of this assurance. Thus, it does not at all encourage believers to be negligent. What are the effects of the natural fruits of this assurance? Number one, in this way, their hearts may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Secondly, that they, their hearts would be enlarged in love and thankfulness to God. And thirdly, their hearts would be enlarged in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. Consider the opening part of this paragraph, waiting for assurance. This infallible assurance, remember it's infallible not because it's rooted ultimately in our own emotions or our own personal subjective experience of our assurance in any moment. It's infallible because of the objective work of Christ. This infallible assurance is not such an essential part of faith. In other words, assurance is not of the essence of faith, such that to lack assurance is to lack faith in Christ. That's the point that it's making. But true believers may wait a long time. Those who have truly exercised faith in Christ may wait a long time and struggle with many difficulties before attaining it, which is to say, how do we know then that this infallible assurance is not part of the essence of saving faith? And the answer is because this assurance can often come later and after, sometimes some time after we have rested on Christ by faith. In fact, the confession has already addressed this. Chapter 14, verse 1, tells us that our faith must be increased and strengthened. Why does it need to be increased and strengthened? Because it's yet weak and small. That's what it says in chapter 14, verse 3. This faith, it can be different in degrees, and it may be weak or strong, though it may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ. Which is why James Renahan, I think, rightly says, little faith, that is a small faith, is not no faith. That is so key. Because if you and I conflate 
our assurance of salvation with true saving faith, then our assurance will always waver. Our faith is in the objective work of Christ. Our assurance that we belong to Christ may come progressively and slowly. We may have at times to wait for it, but it is not of the essence of saving faith. Saving faith is altogether distinct from, though related to, our assurance. Can you see why that's so key? Why it's so important then to distinguish saving faith, chapter 14, from assurance of grace and salvation, chapter 18. With Christ as its object, even little faith, even, as Adam put it on Sunday, a mustard seed faith, is not no faith. And even that little faith is all the faith that's needed for the world-creating, omnipotent power of God to save sinners like you and me in Christ. That Christ is the agent of salvation, not our faith. Our faith is merely the instrument whereby we reach out and take hold of what Christ has done for us. However weak our faith may be, it is true saving faith. But how then do we attain this assurance if we are one who perhaps is not fully experienced it, and we're one who is waiting for it, we long for it, we struggle with many difficulties as we wait for it to come, how do we attain to it? Well, we give ourselves, first of all, to God's means. Notice here, yet with the enabling of the Spirit to know the things freely given to them by God, they may attain this assurance by using ordinary means appropriately without any extraordinary revelation. Can it ever be the case that a Christian, growing desperate for the assurance of salvation, goes above and beyond and past the ordinary means that God has appointed, the regular preaching of the word, the right administration of the ordinances, of ongoing and regular prayer, of fellowship and communion with the saints? Can we bypass, go around and go beyond those things looking for spectacular or extraordinary kinds of confirmations? It was just as true for these saints as it is for us, and it has been for Christians throughout the centuries. What it's saying is that God's means are ultimately sufficient in the hands of God's Spirit to bring the kinds of assurance that we're waiting for. That we can attain to it by giving ourselves by faith, trusting that the Spirit will use God's means, of His Word and of prayer especially, to bring us into the assurance of grace and salvation. Therefore, what is our duty in light of this? If God has appointed certain means to this end, what is our duty other than to avail ourselves actively and persistently and diligently to those means? Therefore, it is the duty of all to be as diligent as possible to make their calling and election sure. Look at 2 Peter 1.10. It's the language that's taken straight from there. 2 Peter 1.10. Taken by itself, I think 2 Peter 1.10 can seem rather intimidating, almost discouraging. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. How do we do that? Do you practice the qualities, he says, that I just mentioned? Well, if so, you'll never fall. What are the qualities? 
Look at verse 5. Supplement faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." We might look at verse 10 and go, well, I want to be diligent to confirm whether or not I'm truly a Christian, my, my calling and my election, and so I'm going to examine myself and see, well, is there virtue and, and is there the knowledge of Christ? Is there self-control in my life? Is there steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection? Well, I think there is, but man, if I'm really being honest with myself, many days these things are lacking or weak or maybe altogether non-existent. Well, that's why the good news of 2 Peter 1 is that verse 5 isn't the beginning of the chapter. Notice how it begins, verse 5, for this very reason. What's the reason? What's the reason that we labor and endeavor with diligence to see these things manifested in our lives? Well, here it is, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, if you are in Christ by the power of God, then you are lacking nothing. All that God requires of you has been given to you in Christ. And he's done so through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. What kind of knowledge is that? It's no less than the knowledge of Christ. We just talked about it. It is the knowledge up there in paragraph 2 of the blood and the righteousness of Christ as revealed in the gospel. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, that is through his precious and great promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature that you would enjoy union with Christ and communion with God, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Notice verses 3, 4, and 5. That is the work of God alone. Your work isn't found anywhere in there. Peter's saying on account of what God has done in his power, through Christ, in the gospel, saving you because of this, because you have received everything and are lacking nothing in the gospel, now be diligent to make every effort to grow in godly character. And if you see yourself fixated on the truth of the gospel and consequently growing in this godly character, then such that this godly character cannot be increasing without being rooted in the gospel, verses 3 through 5, well, then they'll keep you from being ineffective or fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the same pattern here. The objective reality of the gospel of what God has done in Christ and the subjective inward work of the Spirit in producing in us fruit in keeping with godliness. We have a primary objective assurance followed by a secondary subjective experience. And so when we get to verse 10, he says, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling. That is, if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. 
We are meant to go back to verse 5 and see for this very reason, which takes us back to verse 3, which roots us first and foremost in the objective work of God in Christ. I fear too often we get to verse 10 and we read it without context. And we start to look at our hearts and we go, do I feel this? Do I, have I felt this way today? No. And so we work our way backwards and, and maybe we look at those character qualities and on our best days we think, okay, I'm doing okay, but our best days are far and few between and, and we struggle with assurance, but we cut ourselves off from the truth of verses 3, 4, and 5. Beloved, this is why paragraph 2 is so important because verses 3, 4, and 5 are what are ultimately foundational for our assurance. So when we're to be diligent with confirming our calling, we are to be diligent to root ourselves in the very reason that we're diligent to grow in godly character. That is the work of God in Christ. Well, we can be sure then that these effects then are the natural fruits of an assurance that that flows from rooting ourselves in the objective work of Christ and seeing the subjective work of the Spirit at work in our lives. And therefore, it does not encourage us to be negligent, but the effects are threefold. First of all, we grow in spiritual fruit. In this way, our hearts would be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. Not only do we grow in spiritual fruit, do we see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, but we also grow in worship, that our love for God grows and our gratitude to Him grows. Thirdly, it's growing in obedience and strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. In other words, over time we find that obedience to God is not a begrudging duty, but it's something that we do with joy and with cheerfulness because God has been good to give us His commands. But in all of these things, notice that the confession says that it is by way of an enlarged heart. I think that's important because it's taking our eyes ultimately off of the outward providence of God over the outward circumstances of our life, whereby too often we measure the, 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 the faithfulness of God to us, where too often we measure our assurance and our standing before Him. We look at our circumstances around us and we measure our standing before God based on those assurances. Does God love me? Has He forgotten me? And here it's focused ultimately on the inward work of the Spirit in our lives. That is that our hearts, having been regenerated by the work of God, are being enlarged, they're growing. Like the Grinch, you remember? The end of the book, he gets spellbound by Christmas and his heart enlarges. There's a little bit of shriveled up heart and it enlarges and that's the image of the confession. All of the writers were reading Dr. Seuss, I'm sure. But it's enlarged by the work of the Spirit because you're rooting yourself in the gospel through the means that God has appointed and through the power of the gospel and the enabling work of the Spirit we aim to cultivate in our lives godly character from which comes assurance. Well, finally, we see in the last paragraph a renewal of assurance. See, first of all, assurance lost, and then we see assurance restored. It says at the beginning, true believers may in various ways have the assurance of their salvation shaken, decreased, or temporarily lost. I wonder if you've ever felt that way or if... Perhaps you're even feeling that way tonight. It lists a handful of ways 
First of all, by personal negligence. This may happen because they neglect to preserve it. That is, they fail to avail themselves of the means of grace or to fall into some specific sin that wounds their conscience and grieves the spirit. That they're walking in sin. They've not renewed repentance. And so if I'm counseling a saint and they're struggling with assurance, there's a number of ways that we might diagnose, some diagnostic questions that I might ask. And one of those diagnostic questions might be, is there any sin in your life, perhaps hidden, perhaps known only to you and God, that you have not yet, with the Spirit's help, repented and turned from through proper confession to God and others? You can be sure if that little sin or that big sin or whatever it may be is something that you're holding on to such that you don't want to give it up and you love your sin more than your Savior, then it's no wonder that you're lacking assurance. But not only by personal negligence, also by powerful temptations, unexpected and forceful temptations, the confession says, that we can be so tempted by Satan towards certain kinds of sins, and that temptation could be so sudden and could be so strong that we might for a moment confuse those temptations with sin itself. Thinking insofar as we cannot escape temptation, and that temptation must therefore be our sin, that we have ongoing indwelling sin that we cannot put to death and therefore have no assurance. Beloved, we need to be really careful that we distinguish between temptations that come from outside of us and the giving in to those temptations, which are truly sin. Temptation is not sin. Responding to temptation, believing its promises, taking the bait, so to speak, and denying God's word in doing so, that is sin. Beloved, you will be assailed by temptation every day, sometimes more than others, between now and when Jesus takes you home or returns. And if you confuse those temptations with sin that belongs to you, that you're accountable for, then you're going to undermine your assurance. Temptation is not sin, but temptation is real. And we need to make sure that we distinguish those. Or thirdly, not only by powerful temptations, but assurance might also be lost by providential darkness. That is when God withdraws the light of his face and allows even those who fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Not because of any sin on your part. Not because of any great temptation that's come about. But because God in his hidden wisdom has chosen to lead you through the valley of death. And it's in those valleys... In that darkness where you have to trust that God in time will produce the light of his countenance. Look at Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah 50. Who among you, Isaiah says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. There are times where God and his providence leads us into the valley of the shadow of death and all we can see around us is darkness. 
And though we cannot understand all of his ways and we can't understand or see the workings of his hands, we do know from his word right here the intent of his heart that he leads us into providential darkness, even darkness that may for a moment cause us to lose or lose our assurance or have it be shaken so that we might ultimately trust in his name and rely on him. It's for our good. But that darkness can rattle us sometimes, can't it? And yet our assurance will in time for all those who are true believers will be restored. And he lists six things here in the second half of the paragraph. Yet, such a good word in this chapter, they are never completely lacking the seed of God, the life of faith, the love of Christ and the brethren, sincerity of heart or conscience concerning their duty. All of these things have been given to us in the gospel. All manner of things concerning life and godliness are ours. The seed of God there is speaking in 1 John's language of the Spirit of God. And it's no coincidence that it begins there. The Spirit of God is what ultimately produces in us the life of faith through regeneration. In regeneration, we come to behold by faith the very love of Christ for us as demonstrated in his incarnation, sufferings, and death. It also illumines us and brings us into the communion of the saints, that we are loved by them and they love us, such that if we are in Christ, we can no more lose his love than we can lose the love of the brethren, that it's given us a new heart that is sincere in its trust in him, and of a conscience that has been cleansed and awakened concerning our true obedience and our duty to God. All of these things are ours by, by virtue of God's gift to us. We possess them. And because of these graces, that's what the confession calls them, out of these graces, through the work of the Spirit, this assurance may at the proper time be revived. Saying, if you are one who is here that is lacking in assurance or it has been slow to come, fixate yourself on two things. All of the things that you find here are graces that have been given to you in Christ and you cannot lose them. And secondly, your assurance will be revived at the proper time. God will revive it according to his will for his glory and for your good. In the meantime, you're to wait on him and trust in him and rely on him. Though he will, by his spirit, keep you, Lord willing, from utter despair through these graces. I hope that was helpful to you. It's a good summary of what the scripture teaches concerning an often misunderstood doctrine. And you can see it has lots of pastoral and practical implication, not just for, for life and ministry, but also just for our own daily walks with the Lord. I hope it's encouraging to you. Let's pray now and we'll take some time for questions.